What do you uh, picture in your mind when you think of the phrase, the good life? What comes to mind when you think of that? To have a life which is full, uh, flourishing, abundant, and good. What What maybe comes to mind for you in that? Well, personally, having just come back from an all-inclusive honeymoon, uh, I very much enjoyed a taste of that good life with uh, these enormous breakfasts, followed by a three-course lunch, a three-course dinner, and uh, free drinks throughout the day. The only difficulty I faced at times was whether to have the omelette, the, the poached eggs, the scrambled eggs, the pancake, or the waffles. It was a challenging time. That really was a sense of the good life, a taste of things which were good. But maybe for yourself, when you think of what is good, uh, maybe you think of an experience, maybe you think of uh, people in your life, maybe you think of holidays or things that really fill your heart, make you have a sense of the good life. But perhaps, though, when you, you think of the good life, you maybe think of the TV show, The Good Life. It was a 70s show uh, detailing the midlife crisis of a man and his, and his wife in, in their attempt to escape what was described as the modern-day rat race. Uh, they instead wanted to, to live a self-sufficient life. Because as, as they believed, really at that time, that their life, that it wasn't good. And that they had to make changes. They, you could say that they repented, that they changed their minds. They changed the way that they lived, choosing instead to live a simpler life that they believed would be ultimately the good life. As we come to the passage this evening, we we must ask, well, okay, popular culture and our own lives maybe have our own ideas of what the good life is, but ultimately, what does Jesus say about what the good life is As we think about that, we're going to have a look at the passage this evening from Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to 20, the parable of the sower. Mark, he's he's writing around 60 AD. Uh, He's recording the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. As he mentions in chapter 1, that the kingdom has come near because Jesus has come. Therefore, the response for everyone everywhere is to repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel, of the kingdom of God. Because as we look at chapter 4 of Mark, we see at the verse, very beginning in verse 1, Jesus, he's, he's teaching the crowds, and he taught them all in parables. It's quite difficult to define exactly what a parable is. We might perhaps define it or describe it as a, a metaphorical story, a story with a hidden meaning in it. Uh, that calls people to listen to it because there's a, a meaning, a hidden meaning in the story. And that is exactly what Jesus calls people to do. You see that in verse 3, as Jesus says at the beginning of verse 3, listen. And then in verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen up. It's like a teacher on a, on a Friday afternoon trying to get the mass uh, teenagers to call to attention. Listen up. Because what I have to say is so serious that whether you receive it or reject it will depend on where you go in life, 
It will depend on whether you experience the good life or not. Whether you receive the good news of the kingdom or whether you reject it yourself. Because as we'll see really from the parable, there are four responses to the kingdom of God. There's firstly the stolen life. You see that in verse 4 and 15. Then we have the shallow life, the strangled life, and lastly, the superabundant life. The stolen life, the shallow life, the strangled life, and the superabundant life. Four responses to the kingdom of God. The first response to the farmer's seed being sown is not the abundant and good life of the kingdom of God, but rather it is the stolen life. It could say the stolen seed. As you look with me there in verse 4, we see that the seed falls on the path and is eaten up by the birds. And then later in verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, this is like the response of some people to the word. They are hardened to it. Hardened to it and Satan is at work in taking it from them. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Satan blinds people from believing. But as we heard last week, Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. And yet at the same time, we do know, as the Bible says in many different places, the devil is nonetheless at work in our world. He is the spirit of this age, Ephesians 2, at work in many people's lives in our world. Maybe as you follow along in news articles, you'll have seen recently there's a town in Suffolk called Bungay, which has been named the country's devil-worshipping capital of the UK. Not really a title I'm sure they put on their tourism brochures. According to the 2021 census, around one in every 120 people in the village of Bungay identify as Satanists. I'm sure not everyone will publicly want to to identify that in the census. But that is, it shows a sense of which the the movement and display of of Satan and the devil in culture is more and more prevalent. You see that in pop culture too. Uh, The recent song by Sam Smith, uh, the song called Unholy, that he performed at the Grammys, he was dressed as the devil in a very popular song in popular culture. The influence of the devil is more and more commonplace, it seems, in, in, in the world. And it's fascinating to me in marrying into a Ghanaian family as well, because in, in African culture, the mention of the devil is really common. Uh, when my dad had a heart attack recently, uh, one of uh, the family members in her prayer uh, said, Satan, you have come to the wrong house. Protect this family in Jesus' name. Amen, sister. Amen. Because the devil in the Bible is described as the destroyer, the enemy. He is the destroyer of all good things. He's described as a deceiver, described as the father of lies. And surely you see that, don't you, when you share the gospel with people, people that you know and love. And you don't get a response from them. You sow the seed. You sow the seed of the word. And it's not that they're hostile to the word. 
It's just that they don't care. You want those close to you. You want your brother. You want your mum. You want your wife. You want your husband. You want your son or your daughter to believe in the Lord Jesus and know life in him. But as you tell them, they just don't care. And yet, as Jill mentioned, our role is to be faithful, to continually scatter the seed of the word of God into people's lives, to pray for people that the Lord would work in their hearts, praying that God would open their hearts and that they would know that life in Jesus. And so one response to the kingdom of God is not abundant life, but it is the stolen life. And the second response is the shallow life. Jesus describes that initially to the crowd in verse 5 to 6, and then in more detail to his disciples later in verse 16 and 17. As this seed is sown in the rocky places where there isn't much soil, so it springs up, it springs up initially, but then it withers and dies because there is no root. Jesus explains to his disciples that the kind of seed sown in this soil is like those who hear the word, they hear the word of God and they initially receive it with joy. But then since that they have no root, as Jesus says in verse 17, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. When trouble and persecution come, the word of God does not bear fruit in their life. Reading from Open Doors this past week, it talks about persecuted Christians. In Egypt, one man called Fadi was killed by a colleague on his construction site using a bulldozer for the only reason that he was a Christian. He killed him because he was a believer. To be a Christian for many people in the world is both difficult and dangerous. Whether you're in countries like parts of Egypt or Pakistan or Somalia, Afghanistan, Nigeria, converting to Christianity can put your life at risk, at risk even by your own family members. People have to hide it from their mum or dad. Because the normal path of becoming a Christian, becoming a believer throughout history is that of trouble and persecution. Jesus speaks of that very clearly. And whether that's in the Roman Empire in Jesus' day or secular governments of today. Because for many of us, we we probably don't face massive persecution or the threat of torture for converting to Christianity. But we may face many troubles, troubles and trials. It might be for the sexual ethics that we hold to. Because as Bible-believing Christians, we don't hate LGBTQ plus people. We just don't agree with them. As Christians, we don't hate anyone. We love everyone. But we just have a different worldview on what it means to be a man and a woman in the world. Later in the year, in November, Andy Robinson will come and speak to us to help us to navigate through life as a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian in a world which has really turned its back on God. Because we don't want to live like everybody else. In fact, we can't live like everyone else if we belong to the Lord because of what he has done for us. We can't possibly live like everybody else. 
because we want to live for Jesus in all that he's done for us. And yet for those in whom they fear the trouble or the persecution that the word might bring, they're like the seed that falls on the rocks. They initially seem to receive it with joy, but quickly they fall away because they have no root. It's not an abundant life that they receive, but it is in fact just a shallow life, a shallow life that leads to death. Because there's the response of the stolen life, the shallow life, and thirdly, there is the strangled life. Jesus says in in verse 7, the third type of seed falls on the thorns and is choked and it doesn't bear any grain. He later explains to his disciples in verse 18 and 19, these are like people who hear the word of God but are choked. They're choked by three things. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. They're strangled by these things. As the worries that people might have could be, well, what will people say of me? Will they continue to talk to me? Will they like me? Will they disown me? We're not going to get beaten up for coming to Jesus, but we might get bullied if we're at school or university or maybe even in the workplace. People might just openly mock us for following Jesus. Maybe our teachers at school or our lecturers at university, they won't threaten to murder us, but they will mock us for believing in the guy in the sky. Because this is some of the worries of life. What will people say of me? How will they respond to me? And even what will I miss out on if I become a Christian? What things might I miss out on? Is God just... The fun police. Has he come into my life? Will he come into my life to just suck the joy out of my life? What if I miss out on the other things that people seem to enjoy? So there's the the worries of life and then there's the deceitfulness of wealth. Maybe if you have read through the Gospels, you you think of the, the rich young ruler. When Jesus says to him, you just lack one thing. And you can imagine the rich young ruler just sitting up attentively. Yes, Jesus, what is that one thing? Well, he says, yeah, just all that wealth you have, just, just get rid of that. And then once you've got rid of that, then, then you can come and follow me. And we know his response. He went away sad because he had much wealth. Because wealth, it can be very deceptive. We can start to use it at times as a bit of a security blanket. Sometimes we might confess that the Lord is our rock and refuge, but sometimes it's more likely our money that might be that. The Lord says to us in Deuteronomy 8, be careful not to trust in your wealth, otherwise you might be tempted to forget the Lord. You might be tempted to think, well, I I don't need him. I'm okay myself. I am self-sufficient. It's good to have a healthy fear of money at times, not to depend upon it, but to be thankful to God for it. And so we have the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, but then also there is the desire for other things. It could be good things. It could be really good things, family, friends, hobbies, anything that leads you 
to following something else other than the Lord. It could be to say, if you're having a thought of who is Jesus, well, it might be to say, well, I want to keep my options open. Jesus, If Jesus is the only way, then I might want to try and keep my options open. But in so doing, we actually turn our back on Jesus. Because that is really the ultimately the seed that isn't fruitful. It is choked by the thorns, by the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for anything else. Instead of producing life, it leads to death. As there's the response of the stolen life, the shallow life, the strangled life, and then finally there is the super abundant life. Jesus tells the crowd in verse 8 that this is, this is what, when the seed falls on good soil and produces a crop, it multiplies 60, 30, 100 fold. And then he goes on to explain to the disciples later in verse 20 that this is like those who hear the word of the kingdom of God, accept it, and they produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Because as we look both at this type of response and the other three responses, we see really a stark contrast. The first three responses are initial responses of the people. They are like those who hear the word, but they reject it. They don't produce a crop. Because the crowds of the day, and it seems that the religious elite are listening in, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, they do not believe the word that Jesus is sowing. As the harvest that Jesus is speaking of in verse 20 is both, it's both a current display of hearing and receiving the word, and it's also a picture of the harvest of the last day, where Jesus, as the king, will bring in the final harvest on that last day, on judgment day. As for those who reject Jesus, reject his word and his kingdom, they face only eternal death in hell. But friends, the wonderful encouragement for each one of us who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus is that you are part of the harvest of God. You are part of God's eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom of God belongs to you some of us may produce some fruit others lots of fruit but all of us that are trusting in the lord will be part of that harvest on that final day we are his kingdom people as jesus he is the one that produces fruit in our lives the fruit of the spirit it's not our it's not our gift It is God's gift to us. He produces the fruit in us. He makes us fruitful that we would would produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Jesus makes us fruitful. That we would have a taste of that good life to come. That kingdom life as we live as kingdom people. However, as you, as you look at this, this parable, you might be tempted to think, well, maybe if I'm the good soil, perhaps it's because, well, I'm, I'm just more open by nature. Maybe it's just my, 
my type of personality. Maybe I'm more predisposed to the things of God. And, and that's why God's word bore fruit in me, because I'm like the good soil. And therefore, we might think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. If I'm the good soil and others are not, well, that doesn't seem right. Because if this is the case, then what we need to tell people is, what you need to do is you need to go and sort yourself out. If your life is a mess, go and fix your life first. Make yourself the good soil and then come to Jesus. Then God will accept you in that way. They need to fix themselves first before coming to God. But if we begin to think like that, we deny the grace of God because that is exactly how God saves us. Purely by his grace. And we see that vividly in verse 11 and 12 where Jesus explains to the disciples the significance of the parable as Jesus told them. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you but to those on the outside everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. When you first read this, perhaps the thought is, why would Jesus say that? Why would he do that? Why would he say this? Because it seems like he's putting a barrier in people's way. Surely he wants everyone to be saved, everyone to come to him, everyone to be part of his kingdom. But the answer is, Jesus is saying, actually, if you think you are righteous enough, then in fact you are unrighteous. If you think you are religious enough, like the Pharisees and the scribes listening in, you are unrighteous. You're not good enough. You're not good, in fact. It is only those who realize their need. Maybe you go to church all the time. And yet the truth of the kingdom of God is not true for yourself. That you are outwardly religious, but don't have a new heart, not fruitful for the Lord. Because ultimately, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We don't enter God's kingdom by choosing God. We are part of God's kingdom because he chooses us. As Jesus says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Because the secret of the kingdom of God is not a reward to be earned. It is a gift to be received. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift of God given to us freely in his son, Jesus. A gift of grace. That is, that as God reveals himself to us in Jesus, the only response we can have is to repent and believe, to trust in him. Because Jesus is the king and he is bringing in his kingdom. Jesus invites each one of us into his kingdom because he, as the seed of God, came from heaven and died on a cross to bear the punishment for our sins. And like the seed was buried in the ground for three days. But on the third day he rose again, defeating 
death, sin, and Satan. And so that for all those trusting in him, we would not perish, but have eternal life in his name. That we would be part of his kingdom people. That we would taste something of the good life, even today. To repent and believe in Jesus the King, who welcomes us with open arms into his eternal kingdom. That is what we have when we trust in him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace to us in Jesus. We thank you that you have, uh, you have sown your seed and we have received it, not by anything we have done, but it's purely by your grace, by your work, and by your spirit at work in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would help us to go out and sow seed, that we would share the good news of the gospel with others as we have received it, that we would be faithful in what you've called us to do. We pray that you would help us in this, that we would see a harvest, that we would see abundant life both in our lives and in those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.